Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now by the time of the supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his robe, took a towel and tied it around himself. Next he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the the towel tied around him. He came to Simon Peter who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you don't understand now, but afterward you will know. You will never wash my feet, ever, Peter said. Jesus replied, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who is, one who is bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, you are not all clean. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his robe, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord. This is well said, for I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash wash one another's feet. For I have given you, you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. I assure you, a slave is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I am not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen. But the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I assure you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him at once. Children, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I tell you, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The second reading is from 1 John, chapter 2, verses 3 to 11, and it can be found on page 1119 of the Church Bibles. This is how we are sure we have come to know him, by keeping his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him, yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is perfected. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have heard from the beginning. The old command is the message you have heard. 
Yet I'm writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother remains in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness, walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Good to see you all this morning. We're in 1 John again and I encourage you to keep that part of God's word open. Uh, Page 1119 of the Bible as we continue to walk through this text, this wonderful book uh, of 1 John as we seek to flourish as God's people, rooted in truth, to grow in love. Welcome to week two of this wonderful time. Let's pray together and ask God to help us understand his word. Father, we praise you for your word and we praise you for this part of your word, 1 John. Father, we thank you but by your spirit you've inspired John, the writer of this letter, to pen these words. Father, we praise you that he was a man who saw Jesus who heard Jesus and loved Jesus. And Father, we pray that as we think about that same Jesus this morning, that Father, we would leave here, Father, seeing Jesus afresh, hearing his words of grace again, and Father, loving him, and so loving all people as we have opportunity. And Father, do a great work in each one of us this morning. Help me to speak faithfully and with power that we might be changed as your people for the good of your glory and your renown. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I wonder, what would you say has been the key to the growth of the Christian church from the beginning? If I was to ask you that question personally, how would you answer it? What is the key to the growth of the Christian church throughout the ages? I wonder what you would say. Well, from the beginning, the secret to the growth of the Christian church and its impact in the world has been the depth of its love and its community. We know beyond doubt that Christianity uh, in the first centuries grew not because of armies. They didn't have any armies. Uh, We know that it didn't grow through political persuasion or legislation, but it grew through the extraordinary love of individuals who then came together to be a powerful, loving community. And for this, we have evidence from a non-Christian emperor named Julian who despised Christians because of the way they were taking over the world with the stealth of their love. Let me quote from him. He's on the screen. He writes to the pagan priests in the 4th century. He writes this. When it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by our priests, that's like the pagan ones, then I think those impious Galileans, that's a way of saying Christians, observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. The Galileans began with their so-called love feast or hospitality or service of tables, for they have many ways of carrying it out and therefore have many names. And the result is they have led very many into Christianity. The key to Christianity's success in antiquity was the depth depth of its love that issued in a community of truth displaying compassion, sympathy and mercy for all those around. And that is what we ought to be in modernity, not just way back then, but today. A community of great love rooted in the truth of the gospel. 
And it continues to be a topic of ongoing study in our world today. As I mentioned last week, I introduced you to two particular characters, uh, Professor Robert Putnam, a PhD guy, doctor of uh, political science in the US at Harvard University. He, as I said last week, is uh, known as America's leading intellectual. Uh, and he has written a book called uh, Bowling Alone, looking at the disintegration of community in the United States. One of his students, uh, Dr. Andrew Lee, an Australian, uh, studied under him and came back uh, and did some work and wrote a book called Disconnected. These both these guys are kind of known for their um, kind of understanding or coining of the phrase social capital, the bonding within communities for the sake of bridging into other communities. And despite the fact that Lee describes himself as an atheist and a big fan of Dawkins and Hitchens, the two most perhaps influential atheists of our time, he thinks they're totally wrong on their sociology where they say that the church is actually evil and unhelpful in our community. He writes this, Dawkins and Hitchens underestimate the impact that declining religious participation has had on the social fabric of nations like Australia. While it is possible to point to examples of intolerance, Australia's religious bodies have on the whole been a force for good by strengthening social capital in both its bonding and bridging forms. Bonding within communities for the sake of reaching into other communities for the sake of God's glory and the gospel. In his chapter, uh, Andrew Lee, in his book Disconnected, great book, read it if you get a chance to, he summarises this huge amount of data that's been collected on us, you and I, uh, Australian people. And on every single score and every single measure that the sociologists have devised, Christians outscore everyone else. We, we're kicking goals as Christians. It's slightly embarrassing, though, to mention some of the data that he comes up with. But in the context of our society, where regularly, I feel, we hear that Christians are unhelpful in our society and perhaps even pernicious and evil and indoctrinating of people, this particular atheist says the research is nothing like that. Let me share with you just a few things. There's some images going to come up on the screen. Church people, church folk volunteer for more organisations and for more hours than non-church folk. Christians give more to charities, even secular charities, than other people in our society. Christians have more friends and more meaningful relationships, deeper, proper, real relationships than other people. Church people are more likely to have Friendships that span the socioeconomic sort of divide. We're more likely to have a friend who is a poor person and also someone who is rich. And I don't quite understand this last one, but apparently church folk give, they donate more blood than anyone else in society. Go figure. Who here has donated blood in the last 12 months? Yeah, they didn't survey us, did they, when they went about this data? Why? Why? What's going on in church? At least in theory, to foster this bonding and this bridging for community. What's going on? I actually think the answer is not very pleasing for the political science people, particularly atheist political scientists. But I think the answer is this. Knowing Jesus Christ. Knowing Jesus Christ. Oh, Simon. It's so cliched. It's so yesterday. It's so simplistic. It's so religious. But it's the answer that Christians have been giving from the first century to the fourth to the fifth to the 21st century. Knowing Jesus changes everything. And that's what our passage is about today. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 and following. 
Knowing him, knowing Jesus, changes everything. Have a look with me at page 1119 and verse 3 of chapter 2. John writes, This is how we are sure that we have come to know him, by keeping his commands. The one who says, I've come to know him, yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is perfected. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Now it's very important to state, before we tuck into this section of God's word, that in this passage John is not explaining how we get to know God. Did you see that? You've got that? This is not a passage about how we get to know God. How we get to know God was last week's passage. This passage is how we know that we know God. That's what we're looking at today. How did we get to know him? Last week we saw that in the opening part of John's Gospel. And in particular, have a look at the opening lines of chapter 2. And in particular, verse 2, chapter 2. He himself, Jesus, is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. How did we get to know God? He died for our sins. Only he was able to die for our sins. The true human and truly divine one died on a Roman cross, suffered the punishment that we deserve for our rejection of God. He took on his shoulders the wrath that we ought to have faced ourselves. And as we throw ourselves onto the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, we are cleansed, forgiven. Again, at one with our creator, our father. And it's that idea that is then the basis for everything else that flows in the letter of 1 John, and particularly our passage today. Please, 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 please don't get this back to front. Our text today is not about how you get to know Jesus, it's how you know that you know Jesus. In other words, it's about the sign in your life that you've actually come to know God the Father through Christ the Son in the power of the Spirit. What is the sign that you've come to know? The one who came from glory, lived, died and rose again and will come back again? Well, the answer is pretty clear. It's in verse 3. I just read it a minute ago. Have a look. Verse 3. Keep his commands. Verse 5. It's pretty clear also. You know you know him when you keep his word. And verse 6. When you walk as Jesus walked. When you live as he lived. In other words, we know God the Father through Christ the Son, and by that his Spirit will create in us a family likeness. We'll look like God, we'll begin to act like God, Jesus Christ. In various measures, for sure, we mature in the family likeness, but in every one of us there will be a degree to which we all begin to act, look like, walk like Jesus, because we've come to know him and we start to imitate him. Did you notice in this little passage as it was read out just before, that the word knowledge appears a bunch of times in rapid succession in these opening verses. The Greek word for knowledge is gnosis, and it appears four times in our particular text. It's on the screen. To summarise, we know that we've come to know, and then someone else says, oh, I know, and then he goes on to say how you know. Four times we see the word gnosis come up. No, 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 no. This is most likely a deliberate critique by John of the false teachers that I mentioned last week. John takes a shot at them in verse 4. Have a look at verse 4. 
Uh, the one who says, I've come to know, yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Because it seems that from chapter 3 and other places in the letter, that there's a bunch of people who've slipped into the congregation that John's writing to, who use the word knowledge in a completely unchristian kind of way to mean that you can directly bypass Jesus Christ and directly know God through sort of esoteric myths and mysticism and secret theological knowledge. These are the Gnostics that I mentioned last week. They were a sect that rose out of Christianity in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. They downplayed the fleshly, physical, real ministry of Jesus and just viewed Jesus as a dispenser of light and knowledge, but it was secret light and secret knowledge. Know these secrets and you'll be elevated to the divine, to God. With no need to think about the earthly Jesus and his life and his sacrifice. No need to live like him and love like him. Professor Howard Marshall of Aberdeen University puts it well. Knowing God was a favourite theme of ancient religion. It was particularly common in a group of religions that came to be known as Gnostic. For some religions of this kind, knowledge of God meant some kind of mystical experience of direct vision of the divine. For others, it meant knowledge of esoteric myths, which conveyed salvation in those who were initiated in them. In both cases, knowledge was a purely religious attainment and had little, if any, connection with moral behaviour. The evidence which we have gathered together from the epistle, the epistle of 1 John, suggests that John's opponents were not too concerned about sin and evil and did not think that sin was a barrier to fellowship with God. The Gnostics even went on to write their own Gospels. They've got the Gospels, you might have heard of them, Gospel of Thomas and Philip and Judas, for example. And when you look at these Gospels, they're full of words like light and knowledge and secret. That's what they're all loaded with. I won't bore you with kind of working our way through heaps of texts and things like that. Um, But it's curious, I think, that John steals back these words in this letter from the Gnostics. Knowledge and light. He insists that there is a true knowledge, but the false teachers don't have the true knowledge. They don't have true light. They lack it because it entails a certain life that reflects the life of Jesus, which they've pushed aside. After all, true knowledge is knowledge of the one who lived and died for us and gave us a command to do likewise. That's the original form of Christianity, John says in verse 7 of our passage. All that stuff about old commandment that he's saying, that's just original Christianity. Have a look at verse 7 and 8. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you've had from the very beginning. The old command is the message you have heard. Yet I'm writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. John's point here is that unlike the false teachers whose knowledge derives not from Jesus, because none of them had ever met Jesus, John's message is the old one, it's the original one, because John had met Jesus. Do you recall the opening paragraph of the letter of 1 John? It's on the same page, if you just look to the left. John says in that opening paragraph, he goes, I've touched Jesus. Seen Jesus with my own eyes. I've heard Jesus with my own ears. And now he says, I'm telling you the oldest command of Jesus, the original command. That's the one I'm talking about, says John. 
And he isn't contradicting himself when he also says, you know, the old command is actually now new. Do you see that? It's a bit confusing, isn't it? The old ones, but it's, I'm telling you a new command as well. He's not contradicting himself. I think what he just means there is that every time you obey this commandment, it becomes new. It comes to life again in the community of God's people. His big point is that the old command is not some new, wacky piece of knowledge that slipped in at the end of the first century. No, this is the one from the beginning that came from the very lips of the Lord Jesus Christ as he walked and talked and served. But have you noticed at this point, John actually hasn't told us what the new command is, what that command is. Have you noticed that? He's kind of holding off. All these verses saying, remember the command, remember the truth, remember the light, walk as I've walked, without telling us what the command actually is. I think he's deliberately delayed saying what the command is out loud, the word out loud. Partly because he knows that his congregation knows exactly what he's talking about, as you know exactly what's coming. Also, partly it's like a rhetorical device, I think, for John. He says, I'm telling you about this command, about this light, about this truth, without telling us what it actually is. It's kind of like a drum roll. It's a drum roll. And only once we get to verse 9 does he actually say the word out loud. What does it mean to know him? To keep his commands, to keep his word, to walk as he worked in the light? It means to love. To love. Verse 9 through to 11. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother remains in the light, but there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he's going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I really like verse 10, that little expression that's quite easy to misunderstand. Zoom in and have a look at verse 10 with me. The one who loves his brother remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. What on earth does that mean? What does that mean? I'll tell you two ways it does what I'll tell you two things it doesn't mean. The, two, the first is this. It doesn't mean that if you love, you won't commit any sin. If you love, you won't commit sin. That does not mean that. Because we know from 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, it says, You sin. And if you don't think you sin, you're a liar. Okay, so it doesn't mean that. If you love, you'll never sin. doesn't mean that. Second way it can't be, it can't, what thing it can't mean, nor can it mean if you lo- that love is the only thing that Jesus ever asked us to do. And therefore, if you just love, then there's no such thing as sin. As if Jesus never said anything about worldly ambition and drunkenness and greed and money and sex. He said tons of stuff about that. So what does he mean when he says anyone who loves, there is no cause for stumbling in him? What it means is that love is the guiding light of Christian behaviour. It's the guiding light for all of our behaviour, our Christian ethics, of the Christian life. It isn't the whole of the Christian life, the whole of Christian ethics, but it's the perspective from which we are to view everything that we do It's the thing that's to govern all of the virtues, everything we get up to. It's the only virtue. It's not the only virtue, but it's the one that sort of lights up all the other ones so that you can see every other virtue in its proper form. So there's nothing in front of you to make you stumble. That's the image. 
I think this is the idea. And it's so important for us here at Church by the Bridge to get this, that love is to be that which guides and lights up everything that we do as people of God in Church by the Bridge, Kirribilli and beyond. Why? Well, I think it critiques both the right-wing moralist and the left-wing liberal. That's what I think it does for us. The Bible won't let either type off the hook. Why? Because right-wing moralists or left-wing liberal, they are both Christian heresies. They're untruths. You see, love is not just one of the virtues, like honesty, purity, etc. It's the guiding virtue. It's the one thing that lights up every other virtue. So much so that morality on its own, without love, is pure darkness. So it's great to have you here this morning, right-wing moralists. But if you're just going about your morality without love, then you're in trouble. Without love, your morality is darkness. Equally, our left-wing liberal friends, morning, thanks for being here, it's great to have you, need to know that love isn't the only virtue. As if individual ethics, how you live, does all that matters is as long as you're just kind of a nice to people. Love is meant to light up all the virtues, not displace them. Love. Love. And there's an important theological lesson here for all of us this morning, and it's on the screen. When we downplay the flesh and blood reality of Jesus, as seen in the Gospels, our knowledge of God is in danger of becoming purely intellectual, esoteric, doctrinal, not unlike that of the false teachers in 1 John. You see, it's possible, it's really even possible to be a good evangelical Anglican who tends towards being a Gnostic, who treats Jesus almost like a dogmatic theological answer to the sin problem. You know the puzzle, don't you? God's holy, we're sinners, how do you get the two together? Ah, yes, Jesus, he's the atonement for our sins. Excellent answer to the theological puzzle. Carry on with our good theology. I'm exaggerating, aren't I? I've never heard any of you say that over a cup of tea, a morning tea, about the theological puzzle. Do you get what I'm saying? No one acts like that. But there are hints of it. Even in churches like ours. Even in pulpits like ours. Even in a heart like mine. It's possible to have a knowledge-based understanding of Jesus, but not one that embodies Jesus. John says that that isn't knowing him. Knowing him involves knowing his commands, keeping his word, walking as he walked, especially the command to love. It involves verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. How do you know how Jesus lived? You only know how Jesus lived by examining and reading and studying and understanding the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels. You can't know how Jesus lived by accessing some secret knowledge out there somewhere by some esoteric mysticism. It's by the Gospels. What you've got to do is you've got to see Jesus in conversation with the sinners. You've got to see Jesus getting down on his knees, taking off his robes, putting a towel around his waist and washing his disciples' feet. 
You've got to see his love. Let me sum up this whole sermon. Blink and you'll miss it. How do you get to know him? You trust God's love for you revealed at the cross. How do you know you know him? You try to love others. I reckon that's what this letter is all about. How do you get to know him? You trust God's love for you revealed at the cross. How do you know you know him? You try to love others. Let me pray and ask God to help us to do just that with our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word here in 1 John. Father, and for the challenge that it is to us not just to simply know things about you, God, and what you've done for us in Jesus, but that that understanding of who you are and our knowledge of you would translate into lives transformed by your love and lives empowered by your love to love others. Father, I pray for those of us here today, even myself, at times when we just seem to think that knowledge is enough, living like Jesus is not that important. But Father, I pray that you would help us by your spirit to be men and women marked by love. Father, that we would impact our world, whether it be at our workplaces, our families, amongst our friends, that they would see love. Father, that we would be governed by it and it would just ooze from each one of us. So Spirit, do a great work in our church. Protect us from simple Gnosticism. Father, keep us focused on Christ, living like Jesus and loving like him. We Father, we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.